all of a sudden one day I log in to check my current um, statistics and find that my account was suspended and uh, deplatformed. And so I, I filed an appeal to YouTube and I instantly got a um, rejection letter saying that the, um, the suspension stands. Welcome to the Rex Crim Show. We're going to be talking, I think, about uh, non-offending, minor-attracted people and trying to create some nuance, I think, about uh, popular perceptions of uh, pedophiles. I, uh, I think we agreed to kind of speak off the cusp, um, um, but around the theme of censorship, mass reporting, and, and this idea of surviving stigma. So without further ado, could you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your own podcast. Yes. Thanks for having me. Um, I actually recently listened to the one you did with, uh, with PJ and um, it's funny when he mentioned the episode he did with two fellow maps and an ally. um, That's actually the, um, my, my podcast, he did it with me. So um, it's kind of funny to hear him reference that. Um, but yeah, my name's Elliot. Um, I host a podcast called Maps Journey. Um, it's about non-offending pedophiles. I tried to bring on fellow maps as well as researchers and psychologists in the field just to get the most accurate information out there and also to help those who are just developing these attractions and not knowing where to turn. I want them to know that there is help out there and that you don't have to go in it at alone. Um, I've discussed various topics such as coming out, um, how to prevent um, grooming from happening, how to be resilient in in, um, dealing with your minor attraction and other things such as that. Yeah, right on. I, uh, I'm, I'm sort of uh, infiltrating a a bit of a community it seems and, and some interesting podcasts out there. Tell us about your own show. So yeah, like I said, it's a maps journey. Um, it used to be hosted on YouTube, um, but got deplatformed recently. Um, well, actually, a few months now. Um, I know that's something we're going to talk about. Um, so I tried to host it in a few other spots, but realized that if I wanted full full control over whether or not it gets deleted, um, I should create my own domain name. So. I created a website called mapsjourneypodcast.com. All, all the episodes are available on there. Um, and so I, I started it soon after I joined the community two and a half years ago. Um, my friend Todd Nickerson, who many people know of in the community, and a fellow ally named Rusty. Um, Rusty actually had the original idea for it and his idea in general, he wanted to prove to people that um, minor attractive people are just like everyone else, that just because we have this attraction, we're not like some creeper in the woods. We actually share the same interests, um, commonality and politics and stuff like that. So he, he generally wanted to just talk about those things, but, uh, our audience at the time was primarily other minor attracted people. So we, we really weren't reaching a huge audience. So we generally, we eventually switched to mostly talking about minor attraction related um, topics. Um, 
And then once we did that and once Rusty decided to leave the podcast, um, I actually changed the name to what it is now. It used to actually be called Journeys with Maps and Legends. And um, Todd stuck around for a while, but eventually I was the last man standing. So I had to decide whether or not to keep it going or end it. And I, I thought the message was too important to let go. So I just revamped it and um, started inviting anyone who wanted to come on. So I went from there. It's like, like I said, it's been going on for around like two and a half years now, even though I've been deplatformed a few times. Yeah, it's been, I, I want to come back to the idea of being deplatformed and just give context about, you know, who is on the other end of this line. I have listened to uh, a number of your episodes and I was particularly impressed by uh, the dynamic between uh, the client and uh, practitioner or therapist. Um, and you were sort of there to moderate. I mean, there's some, there's a lot of nuance in uh, in humanizing these perspectives. And I guess I want to ask you now about differentiating between popular perceptions of, of what a pedophile is and some of the um, other aspects of, of your life or, or the lives of people that you've encountered. Maybe you can help us understand some of the terminology that we can see on your website. Napophiles, for example, pedophiles, habophiles, abiophiles. Yeah, so, <clears throat> excuse me, um, MAP or minor attractive person is an umbrella term. Um, it, it's, I think, originally was developed by Be- Before You Act, and it was to help distinguish the difference between pedophiles, which is prepubescent, hebophiles, which is um, early pubescence, and aphebophiles, that is um, post-pubescency, near adulthood. And in my opinion, that one... Um, should or should it be included in minor attraction? Because I feel once you get to really start showing adult sex characteristics, you might as well consider yourself a teleophile, which, you know, is um, attracted to adults. Um, I myself consider myself a um, pedophile slash hebophile because my general age of attraction is between 7 and 14. Um, so... That's why I tend to use minor attracted person or map more often than either of the terms, because um, I, I span the, the gamut in age. So. And what about gender? I'm sorry? Well, I'm, I'm wondering about gender as well, or if you're disclosing or if you're comfortable, maybe you can um, eludicate, you know, AOA, the idea of exclusivity. Um, is that something that you're comfortable sharing a little bit about for listeners? Yeah, definitely, because I talk about it on my podcast as well. Um, I'm primarily attracted to boys, but I'm also attracted to minor um, girls as well. Uh, And occasionally I can be attracted to adult females, but I say I'm between 90 to 95% exclusively attracted to minors. Right. So uh, primary attraction versus um, exclusivity, which is something that we've heard uh, in the prior episode with PJ and, and I was quite fascinated to listen to your uh, show uh, at least one of the episodes uh, meeting with a, a female pedophile. Um, but yet there's more nuance still because I don't think, I mean, clearly people who identify with 
these labels or identities uh, are not just that. They're, people are not just maps or pedophiles or whatever term uh, we've covered thus far. Uh, they're, they're people. Uh, I like uh, I like what was something that I heard you say in a prior episode that you borrowed from someone else. We are human beings, not human doings. Yeah, yeah, that's that's something uh, Candace of the Prevention Project always brings up, and I, I really appreciate that of her because, yeah, you know, the general perception of um, society is that we are what she calls human doings. And, you know, just because we have this attraction doesn't mean we'll ever offend. And most of us who have it don't want to offend. I mean, granted, there are a few out there who do and some who are even pro-contact but still choose not to um, act on it more so because they know it's against the law and they can get into trouble. Mm-hmm. I, there's something I, I want to tie this back to the idea of true crime and this sort of obsession that people have uh, and coming to mind are things like to catch a predator and television shows that are just sensational. Um, in your case, uh, Elliot, we're, we're talking about even more nuance because I think you identify with things like, um, um, age dysmorphia. And I wanted to ask about the difference between age dysmorphia in your mind and arrested development, where that comes into the conversation. Yeah, so I I actually feel like I have both age dysphoria and arrested development. Um, I think around the arrested development, I think stems um, due to the fact of the young age I was when my parents first started separating, and I I kind of just like didn't have the ability to go into adulthood um, with their leadership and guidance because they they thought, oh, we're teenagers, my brother and I, that you know we could take care of ourselves. Um, but with age dysphoria, it's basically the need, uh, and the feeling of wanting to be younger. Um, a, I discussed in the episode I did recently where I honestly, for me, it, it really manifests as a physical trait. Like I do not like that my body looks like a man. Um, I would prefer it look like a boy. And a lot of times that's, you know, what I'm actually attracted to when I see a boy is I'm more attracted to wanting to be that boy than there's any sexual attraction at all. There there's, um, you know, I, I imagine people listening are uncomfortable with this topic, uh, as in, you know, I, I like to just give, uh, clarity, uh, as I did with PJ and when I'm having these types of conversations, um, because I think it's important to humanize this experience and to differentiate. Um, I mean, why is it important to hear stories uh, of, of people in your situation from your perspective? Uh, just like kind of what you brought up before about how media chooses to um, sensationalize this and conflate the word pedophile with child sexual abuse. And, I want the topic to be more regularly discussed so people who have this attraction can feel comfortable either coming out to close friends or family as well as um, seek help if they need it. And the more and more that society chooses to conflate the words, the harder that will be. Like um, my one friend, Sheila, who wrote a book on uh, a a short story fiction book on my attraction, um, 
she's really active in getting newspapers and media to report on sex abuse cases accurately. And I think that's very important work. Um, and then I wish there were more and more shows that uh, would accurately re- um, portray non-offending pedophiles. Um, there have been a few recently, like some medical dramas that have tried to do it, um, but they still will either make the person either commit suicide or eventually fall to their attraction. And that's not true in my opinion. If you are strong enough and have a good moral character, um, you know that you do not want to act on this attraction just because you have it. Before we go into some of the maybe barriers that you've experienced or the issues um, in what we might call surviving stigma, I wonder if you could share a bit more context about you as a person. I mean, you're not just these labels. Um, Obviously, I'm not asking for your address or identifying info, but I wonder if you could, what what are you comfortable sharing about about how you live your life day to day? Sure. I mean, I'm a a man in my 40s. Um, I live in uh, the United States. I work go to work just like everyone else. Um, I have good friends, both minor uh, fellow minor attractive people, as well as um, what we like to refer to as normies. Um, And I just live my life. I I enjoy movies. I enjoy uh, having thoughtful discussions on philosophy and religion and sometimes politics, but right now politics is a little too heated. Um, And yeah, I mean, I'm just a normal guy. Um, most most people, if they saw me on the street, would never know that I was minor attracted. Um, I actually came up with this idea a while ago that um, I was going to start a short story or a, like a blog site where people who were minor attracted could list all their qualities and features that people know about them and then end it. But I'm also minor attracted and now you truly know me. And that that's like, I just want people to realize that we are more than our attraction. Um, my one therapist actually helped me with that a lot. She said, yeah, I get to decide on how much my attraction affects my life. I I'm in control of that. And just to be clear then, um, I, it's, I, maybe I'm being presumptuous, but I think I've heard in your prior episodes that you've, you're, you're either in therapy or you've worked in therapy. Is that true? Yeah, I've had, um, two really good therapists and one really crappy one. Um, and the really crappy one was in the beginning. It was soon after I came out, uh, to my immediate family, my brother and my parents and, it was a therapist my brother was seeing at the time and she was actually trained in sex offender treatment. Um, so she was comfortable talking to me, but the problem was, was because she was only trained in that she treated like me, treated me like a offender, even though I never did. And, um, but then I, I stopped seeing her and I didn't have any therapy for a few years. And then I found an amazing therapist in the city I was living at the time uh, it took a few months to feel comfortable coming out to her, but once I did, she she really helped me a lot. Um, and then I had to move back home, so I had to stop seeing her. 
And it took me a good while to find a really good therapist, but I found one within the last few months through the Before You Acts uh, therapy list. And him and I worked via um, Zoom on our, my computer because of pandemic and also in being in different areas of the state. Um, but he actually listed on his website that how he treats minor attracted people and what his opinions are. And that really helped me trust him from the beginning. So I, I felt like I could be open to him completely. And from what I gather, I think there's uh, lists of, uh, compiled of um, therapists who are available to help. And I think, you know, um, linking to your website and others, as I've done, referring to the episode with PJ, uh, there's just a, a, a growing amount of support out there for people that are looking for help. Um, or looking to sort of live uh, a meaningful life in with with this plight, uh, if we can call it that. Yeah. Um, I I, I, I want to draw attention to the fact. Uh, I'm glad that you said it outright. You know that you're 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 not. Um, it doesn't sound like you've ever been charged with a crime. You're not an offender in this sense. Um, and I imagine that there hasn't been. Um, uh, any maybe psychiatric intervention or anything like that. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to just highlight uh, the, the need to better understand nuance here in uh, a population of people that exist in the world that identify in this way, but never come to be known about through law enforcement or through psychiatric intervention, uh, except on their own accord in maybe working with a therapist. But um, otherwise their, their voices are unheard and I, this is an important caveat in my mind because these are the type of people that we should probably be hearing from. Uh, I've weighed, you know, heavily on, on, uh, in editorializing the Rex Crim show, which gives voice to perspective of, of, of those who might be divergent from the mainstream. Um, and I don't think it's, you know, I, I'm not sure if I would describe myself as an ally per se, uh, but I'm curious because there's 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 some ambiguity about the 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 line of what is right and wrong. Um, so maybe you could talk a bit about your politics or morality and what you know how you set rules for yourself or the ethics that you live by in keeping yourself safe and people around you safe, uh, including youngsters. Sure. Yeah. Um... I've mentioned this in a few of my own podcasts as well as appearing on the prevention podcast. I, I was brought up in a pretty strict uh, conservative religion, religious home. And for all the faults that it had for me, I feel like it still did help me develop a very good, strong moral character and knowing that I don't want to harm another individual, especially a child. I actually even get really upset when a child is being harmed on TV, either in um, the news or in a fiction, you know, portrayal on a TV show or a movie. Um, I, for whatever reason, have this attraction. I, I don't know if I was born with it or it was caused by something else, but I choose every day that I do not want to act on it because I know the harm that it could bring to a child. And I, I've never considered myself at a risk. I, been a mentor to a few um, children over the years, and I've never felt like I was ever going to cross the line. And my one um, 
cousin who I was a mentor to still to even this day when we get together, he's, he's in his mid twenties now. He always brings up those times when I used to hang out with him and how much that meant to him in his life. So I, I knew I did the right thing and I'm glad that was the outcome and not him having to constantly relive something that I did to him. I I never wanted to take away his innocence. Can you describe this attraction? Help me understand. I I mean, you've, you've alluded to, you know, an age orientation, seven to 14 years, uh, primarily boys, sometimes girls, uh, primarily to youngsters, but not exclusively. And sometimes to, sounds like adult uh, um, women. I imagine that, is that a graduating scale? Um, help unfold this, you know, what your unique attraction looks like. What, what is it that uh, grinds your gear, so to speak? Yeah. So actually, you know, there's one other thing that some psychologists bring up when dealing with minor attraction. And on top of it being an um, age-oriented attraction, um, some people refer to it as a body type. And I feel for me that really plays into factor because there are times when my attraction, I could be attracted to someone younger than seven or older than 14, but it's mostly because that person looks younger um, than, especially in the older age bracket than what they are. If they are younger, they look, it's weird to say, but older than what they actually are. So I feel body type really plays for me a huge factor. And I think that plays into what we were talking about before with my dysphoria, where I find certain body types attractive just because I want that body type. And I wish my body looked like theirs. Um, As with the adult female attraction, I mostly am attracted to the person and not their bodies. Um, I don't really find adult female body types attractive at all. Um, but the two, um, age appropriate girlfriends I've had in my life, I fell in love with the person and their, their character and their soul. And that, that is what was able to, uh, keep us together. Um, we, we did try a sexual, you know, relationship with each other, but, I don't know how it was for them, but I never really found it satisfying at all. Yeah, it was fascinating to hear you talk about, um, I mean, I can imagine um, if I'm, if I'm trying to put myself in, in uh, a minor attracted person's shoes, I can appreciate why, you know, they would seek a a body type, as you say, uh, and then, you know, perhaps want you know, hair removal or to have a certain look, but it was really interesting to hear you describe that for yourself. I I think, um, you know, just unfold this still a little more about the age dysphoria. It's, it's that, um, yeah. Help help me understand this. (laughs) I'll try the best I can. I'm still really, um, you know, figuring it out myself. Um, I actually didn't even figure out uh, the, the terminology of it till I joined the community. Um, but yeah, I, I am one of the episodes I did on dysphoria. I, I discussed how there are certain times when I have to quote unquote adult for a long time where it really plays on me, where I, my mind slips back into being a child. 
Um, and I just want to be treated like a child. I want to be taken care of as a child. And during those times, I do tend to want to get rid of my body hair. And I pretty much try to get rid of any body hair that's not visible to the public. So I'm not questioned out on the street why I don't have hair on certain areas that most men do. Um, and the only issue with that is unless I could afford uh, laser hair removal, the hair always grows back and it's too much to maintain. So it, I uh, eventually allow it to grow back. And that's normally when I'm coming out of the stage where I feel the need to return to an age that I want to be. And for me, um, the age that I tend to always go back to is around 12 or 13. And through some thought and therapy, I feel the reason why I want to return to that age is that's when my parents first started having marital issues and wow, why I feel like um, I need to almost like reset to that age to have a redo in my life. I, I wanted to ask about um, this idea of nature versus nurture. Uh, you've alluded to, you know, uh, the the idea of, you know, maybe being stunted due to your parents' uh, um, um, separation. And I guess that's suggesting, you know, the nurture side of things, uh, environmental factors that might have impacted you. Do you have other insight on, on this debate of uh, biological versus um, sort of sociological um, impacts that, that, have, that have resulted in your particular makeup? Uh, are you referring more to the dysphoria or my attraction? Oh, that's a good point of clarity that I need to give some more thought to. I mean, I guess we're all products of, of a combination of both, um, nature and nurture. And I've, I've answered my own question in a way. I, I, in regard, like in regards to my attraction, um, I, I do feel I was born with it. Um, it might've took something in, um, nature. Um, I mean, in nurture to like actually activate it. I don't know. Um, there with my first therapist, I, I had, I really wanted to find out why I had this attraction. Cause it, it just did it feel like it should be part of me because of who I am as a person. And all I knew about this attraction was that, you know, eventually I would possibly offend and I knew I didn't want to do that. So I had to try to figure out why, why this was in me. And this therapist, she was, she got her license in the early eighties. And that was back when, the whole, you know, devil worshiping satanic cult, um, stuff was going on and the whole repressed memory topic started coming up. So she really worked with me for months on trying to see if I had any repressed, um, memories over sexual abuse. And I don't know a hundred percent for sure. And I never will cause the person is no longer living, but at the time, um, she fully had me convinced that my my mom's father abused me violently, and that's why my mind blocked it out. Um, I'm more under the presumption now that that did it happen, that it was just something that I created in my brain. But at the time when that first came out and I fully believed it, it still didn't change the fact that I had this attraction. And then 
all it basically did was blur my viewpoint on um, a person that I loved my whole life and alter my perception of him. And it took me a lot of time to work through that. And because he was, was it around when I, I had this repressed memory come up, um, you know, I couldn't discuss it with him. I couldn't try to figure out if it was true or not. And I feel like that was a very harmful practice that this therapist did with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This power of suggestion, uh, and sort of an, it sounds like an ill-equipped, um, scenario of therapy. It reminds me of something that you mentioned while discussing with the female, uh, pedophile, this sort of mental gymnastics that took place where the, uh, where the woman wasn't sure if she was in fact a pedophile because of popular perceptions about female pedophiles in general and that they don't exist. Yeah. Could, could you shed light on your experience? Um, I, I want to talk a little bit more about stereotypes uh, um, versus the, the reality of, of your experience. Um, how, you know, tell me about your experience interacting with female pedophiles. So the one I interviewed on on my podcast was actually the first one I ever really met or ever talked to. Um, I all have always known that it is a possibility. I've never thought that female pedophiles couldn't exist. Um, I just thought, like, why would it only be a male-dominated attraction? It just didn't make sense to me. Um, but as she, she t- discussed and... Um, I think most of society views most females feel like, um, I mean, most people view females as the caring, nurturing type. So they're never questioned of being around children. They're never thought like they might be up to no good. And whereas a man who might have the same nurturing, caring intent being around a child, there's always that stereotype that that man might, you know, harm that child in some way. Um, and I, I feel that obviously it's an unfair thing, but I think in general society views it that way, whether or not the person is a pedophile or not, they just feel that women are more likely to be the caring, nurturing, and men can be dominating and harmful to a child. And, you know, I just feel that that definitely needs cleared up that, both sexes can have this attraction. It might manifest in different ways. It might act in different ways, but it definitely exists. Um, I know Dr. Cantor has said in the past that he, he doesn't feel that female pedophiles exist. Um, I never listened to the discussion he had, so I don't know exactly what he said. Um, but I, I just feel that he needs to, for being the prominent person who brought light to this subject, I feel like he needs to go back to the drawing board in some way. Yeah, that's. I I really liked the uh, line of questioning. It, you were thinking out loud, and you've better um, solidified this idea. I suspect that it probably is. Uh, there is some prejudice and and bias on account of cultural uh, norms and values with respect to how uh, males and females are are viewed, and indeed you know, women, uh, or, or f- the traditional, uh, you know, f- female is sort of seen as a maternal caregiver, et cetera. Whereas, uh, there's, there's more risk associated with men being kind of, 
uh, predatory, etc. So um, that is definitely a, a fascinating topic, and I wonder if if there's bias in this in the limited scientific studies or just um, popular understanding of 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 this uh, sexuality or. I think we'll say sexuality because disorder is is far too uh, loaded. Do, do you want to weigh in on your perspective of uh, the diagnostic and statistical manual, for example? Sure, yeah. I, I definitely view it as a sexuality. Um, I feel it manifests um, the same way. Like I started feeling these uh, this attraction in my early teens, just like any one develops their um, sexual orientation to either males or females. Um, I, I honestly think it actually may have manifested sooner when I was younger. There's a few instances where, to me, they, they look like it could have been a minor attract, attracted instance, but because of how young I was, I, I, I didn't view it in, in a sexual way, so I obviously didn't process it that way, but... Yeah, I definitely feel it is an orientation, um, but given that this whole thing of trying to get people to understand us better is in its infancy, I feel that we should get messed up uh, like on words. Like, I feel like if someone wants to call it an orientation, fine. If want, someone wants to call it a disorder, uh, that's that's fine with me as well. Um, I. I myself feel that eventually it will be determined that it is an orientation um, and that hopefully society t- can accept that. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking of uh, some research that I've seen by Michael Cedo, who has suggested in academic papers that it is uh, an age orientation Um so maybe I'll recall to put a link or just refer people to the episode with PJ, where I think I put a link about both uh, Dr. James Cantor and Dr. Michael Cito's work. Um, but there's more than just the scientific exploration of this. There's the experiential. And that's why I think it's important to hear about uh, uh, perspectives like you, um, Elliot. So um, where do we go from here? I want to ask about um, how you negotiate the idea of fantasy versus actual, you know, your actuality. Uh, maybe you can shed light on past experiences or past relationships where you've had to negotiate um, for yourself interpersonally the the difference between right and wrong. So, anytime that my I start having fantasies um, toward children. It always just stays in that fantasy mode. Um, I've never felt that by fantasizing about a child I see out in public that I was ever at risk of harming that child or that um, if someone in a, there's a child in my immediate circle that I'm attracted to, um, even if I'm having sexual fantasies about them, I, I know that it's just a fantasy. I know it's something that I have to live out inside my head and potentially um, fulfill um, alone. And um, when I was with my uh, uh, age-appropriate female relationships, the first one I was, it was in high school. And 
you know, that whole finding out who you are in high school type of thing. And also the risk of being caught because you're not technically supposed to be together in that way. Um, I think actually kind of heightened that where I find that if I am in a situation where I am in an adult relationship, I find that the only way I can really be aroused and um, have a fulfill fulfilling um, reaction is if there is a risk element to it. And I, I don't know if you would call that a fetish or what, but it, it's something that develops for me. Um, and it's really the only way I can find um, adult relationships satisfying. Um, I don't know if that answered your question. Explain the risk uh, element. What, what do you mean by that? So the risk more so is in being caught, like um, almost, not so much like public exposure, because obviously it's easy to get caught that way, but that there's always a danger element of someone walking in or um, catching you in, in the act of um, having sex. With an adult partner. Yes, yes, uh, definitely. Right. I see. Okay, so the, the, the naughtiness, so to speak, of, uh, of, of maybe even being in public spaces or, uh, you know, a, 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 a risky situation where you ought not to be engaging in sex, but, but, uh, but maybe you are. That's, that's something that resonates with you. Yeah. And I mean, I don't have ex- a lot of experience with it. Um, so I don't know if it's something that will always be there for me or eventually it will dissipate if I ever got in a serious relationship with an adult again. But I know in my previous two experiences that that is definitely what heightened the experience for me. And is that uh, is that something that you've experienced, or is that sort of in the realm of fantasy? Um, with with um, adult females, it's it's been in reality. But um, with minor attraction, there's um, like it's always remained in fantasy. Right, right. So, and can you? confirm or shed a bit of light on like have you ever had a sexual relationship with a youngster or a minor in the past or is that something you're comfortable disclosing yeah i i've never had a you know any any relationship with a child at all um not even someone who says 17 you know um which in most a lot of states that still consider a minor um but no i've never had a relationship i i've even if I'm attracted to the child that I'm close to, I, I've never wanted to cross that line um, in reality. I mean, I might have had a fantasy about it, but I've never wanted to take that risk of harming a child's psyche. I just felt feel that is a total selfish thing to do. You recognize the harm that could come to yourself, certainly, but also to uh, to the young person. You know, if if you did act in that way, and at the age of forty something. I mean, it sounds like you've you've uh, more or less gained some mastery over over this uh, formula or this um, model of the world for yourself. Oh, definitely. Like you know, as I said before, like this started developing in my teens, um, and as with a lot of us who that happens to, you just feel, oh, so I'm attracted to a few years younger than me that. I might either be gay or this is just a weird phase I'll grow out of. But when you start getting older and the 
the age stays the same, then that's when realization kicks in and you have to choose what to do with it. And back when I came to that realization, the internet was basically in its um, like infancy of like accurate resources out there. And so I basically had to do it on my own. I, I never thought there was a possibility I could ever come out to anyone close to me. Um, I thought this was something that I was just going to have to deal with the rest of my life. I didn't ever think I could discuss it with a therapist because I knew of mandatory reporting laws and I didn't know if they thought that my thoughts were enough to report me. Um, so I dealt with this in secret and it was a living hell. I mean, and that's why I'm so happy. There are so many resources out there right now. Um, especially, um, the one that's geared toward teens that the, um, war center created the help wanted prevention program. I, I feel that like if I could have stumbled across that as a 13, 14 year old boy, that would have done so much to help me deal with this. And, um, you know, it, it, it's a living hell dealing with this alone. And that's why I want to get information out there. So both therapists, um, researchers, everyone, and especially, you know, the young minor attractive people out there know that there's hope. Picking up on this point of um, the need to conduct more research, I just want to reiterate this idea of a non-forensic, non-criminal population. Uh, it seems like people, you know, that have sort of um, gone through their 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 lifespan where the sex drive has become diminished later in life, you know, past what you know, whatever the age, past fifties or whatever. I mean, this seems like a target audience. Uh, or a target population to to be doing research on people that identify as uh, minor attracted that have that claim to have never um, done harm that you know are now past their sort of um, risky period if if you can say that uh, uh, I think this would make for some fascinating research but obviously there's huge limitations to accessing such a population and. Uh, you know, and, and validating what they're saying, but it, it's still necessary to hear of their experiences, much like we're doing um, with you today, Elliot, and much like uh, the resources that you're suggesting um, help in, in preventing harm being done to to others. Um, I, I think that's a central aspect to our conversation: is uh, is harm uh, perceived or or actual? Um, and so you have a lot more to lose than to gain. Uh, in your case, you know, you're, you're ostensibly living a good life. Uh, just highlight some of the good things aside from the podcast that you're maintaining um, that you have to lose in acting out uh, that would cause harm. Oh, obviously, first and foremost, friends and family. Um, you know, my mother, brother, um, father, and an aunt and uncle and cousin know, and the only ones who are comfortable talking to me and dealing with it, even if it's not a primary discussion point are my mother and my one cousin. Um, and that is why I've never thought about ever coming out to anyone else. I don't want to lose those relationships. And if I ever, obviously if I ever acted on my attraction, that definitely would cause me to lose those relationships. And you know, in society, I would lose the chance to have, you know, good, well-paying job, um, 
just not to be viewed as like a sick individual because of the um, public registry. Um, people could search my name up and basically like make my life a living hell. Um, I have a friend who was convicted of a non-contact offense. Um, he sent a, uh, a, a, a um, nude image to what he thought at the time was a 15 year old boy and um, he got arrested for it over 20 years ago, and he's still dealing with the ramifications with it, even though he never actually touched a child or harmed it. He that the public registry has made his life terrible. So you know, I I know firsthand how bad that is, and but that is not the primary reason that keeps me um, from from acting out. I know I don't want to harm a child's psyche. I know that the innocence could be lost and they could become a completely different person than they were meant to be. If I, I chose to act on this attraction. I'm interested, you know, in the Rex Grimm show where I'm interested in the ambiguity. And I want to talk now about um, graduating the idea of what it means to offend in the first place. So um, earlier in earlier episodes, I think when the therapist was on talking with your, um, with your compatriot, there was, you know, talk of these benign images like the Sears catalog. And you've mentioned, um, you know, this interest in watching what would seem to be benign um, footage on YouTube, uh, family videos and that sort of thing. So where does that fit into your attraction? Is this something that you find to be sexy or is this something that you have a different kind of interest in? And if so, what kind of interest, uh, what do you get from it? With the YouTube families, um, I definitely um, find it more in lines with, I feel my dysphoria more so than my sexual attraction. Um, on the few channels I watch, I am, you know, physically attracted to some of the, the boys within the family. Um, but as I, I, I discussed on my uh, topic, uh, my my podcast, I think more what it is for me is that when I'm watching those videos, I get to become part of that person's family. I get to like become another sibling or an uncle or someone like that. And I, I think for me, that primarily plays into a fantasy of returning to be younger more so than wanting to sexually um, act out with the images or the video I'm seeing on screen. Um, there are instances where there's certain things like Instagram and um, modeling sites or something like that, where um, children are meant to, are made to look more adult than, you know, they actually are, that they're actually being posed, not sexually, but just in a suggestive manner. And I don't know if that is the actual intent of the photographer or if that's just the way my brain um, or and other minor attractive people interpret it. But those types of things are things that are still legal, but also can play into the sexual fantasy aspects of our life. So, um, I, I mean, forgive me, this might be crude and, uh, no obligation to answer, but if you're, if you're sort of, um, fantasizing about being part of this family, I mean, is this, uh, is this something that you would be masturbating to, for example, or help, 
you know, help me understand. Um, not with the, yeah, not with the YouTube families. Um, those I normally just watch just for the enjoyment of fulfilling that need of wanting to be young again. Um, that's why a lot of my fellow minor attracted people can't understand why I watch those things or watch Disney shows or stuff like that. Even with them might be attracted to some of the kids that appear in those things they can't sit through the cheesiness and the silliness of family life or the corniness of a Disney um, show. And so they don't understand how I can. And so that's why I feel with those, that's definitely plays more into the dysphoria and wanting to be younger. Um, you know, with, with some of like the other images on Instagram or something like that, um, it does sometimes bring me to arousal um i you know not all the time do anything with that but yeah i i'm trying to sort of uh hash out here you know the difference between actual harm and the idea of thought crimes and you know some people you know in theme with our discussion on censorship and and the idea of stigma and mass reporting i mean some people would uh, with, without a, a nuanced perspective, would think that just you know being a, a pedophile is a crime in itself. Um, clearly, there's there's far more nuance um, in in what you're highlighting. Can you help us understand uh, from your perspective the difference between, for example, child abuse of material, uh, pornography, and erotica? So I, I know, I think PJ mentioned this in the episode you did with him. Um, you know, there is erotica out there that's written. There's cartoons. Um, there's um, even like 3D images and all that of that put children in sexual situations. Mm-hmm. And I can understand how that can make the general public feel uncomfortable and like not wanting it to exist. Um, I fully understand that and get that. Um, but because there is no actual child being harmed in the creation of these products, I, I myself view them as completely, um, like not, not harmful at all. I mean, in some ways I, I really feel like they are a helpful outlet for people like us who have to deal with these attractions and have made the, uh, like decision not to want to act and harm a child or view um, actual harmful and um, abusive images such as CSEM and um, CP. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, you know, everyone has a sex drive. Everyone occasionally needs to get to the point of having that release. And I know, like I said, I know it's an uncomfortable topic for people to deal with, but I feel like if people could fully understand that I think and hope hope that eventually they can understand that these are the like a good safe outlet for us mm-hmm. so for you um, there there you do you would not want to conflate you know the idea of fantasy ever becoming a reality I, I, I think people listening are naturally going to say well this is a, a risky behavior um, but I guess um, you're suggesting, Correct me if I'm wrong, but you are suggesting that, you know, uh, one does not necessarily mean the other. Yeah, I mean, it kind of goes back to what people have thought about marijuana in the past, where people consider it a gateway drug. Um, 
I feel that if you are um, going to use drugs, you're going to use drugs no matter if you try marijuana or not. And I feel that's the same with um, fictitious erotic material. If you don't have the moral um, grounding and standing to know you don't want to harm a child, no amount of that consumption of that stuff um, is, you know, going to prevent that. I mean, I feel like, but those people who, have chosen not to want to harm a child, but still have this sex drive toward um, children, I feel like that is something that should be offered to them as an outlet because it helps alleviate a lot of stress and, um, you know, frustration and not being able to fulfill something that most humans get to fulfill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that much of this has already been covered. You're right. I, you know, we, no point in beating a dead horse. We've discussed some of this with PJ and I'm, I think it's come up in other conversations out there. Um, but I think, you know, uh, to move on, to move the conversation to where I want to go next, um, that, that it needs to be covered and, and listeners need to appreciate, you know, that firm uh, grasp that you have on uh, in being morally grounded, which you uh, eloquently point out i think it's courageous by the way to to sort of uh to speak in this way i mean obviously you you've dedicated uh, much of your life to um to helping negotiate um this interpersonal conflict if i can call it that and being able to help facilitate support for others and clearly uh we can agree that we want to make sure people in 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 uh, that are minor attracted are feeling well supported. So they're not acting uh, in a way that could be harmful. So now I want to turn, if it's okay, to the idea of barriers and how you've negotiated. You referred to coming out earlier. Um, what's at stake here? I asked the same question to PJ. I want you to, um, to shed a bit of light in on how it is that you uh, go about, you know, strategies for living a, a meaningful and, and healthy life uh, dedicated to to not offending or, or causing harm? Um, so if I get your uh, question right, you want to know how like I make the decision of whether or not to tell someone or? I want to know what it was like negotiating with a therapist, for example, when you go to a therapist and they're, I think some of what you do in your, uh, in your work on uh, uh, on your website, at least the, the maps journey podcast, you're educating therapists. What was it like for you when you're, or what stories have you heard about therapists, you know, that are concerned about mandatory reporting, for example, unfold this, uh, and, and help listeners understand, uh, what can be done to support folks in your position? Yeah. So with my, my first therapist, like I said, she was trained in sex offender treatment. So, you know, when I first went to start seeing her, she basically did that treatment with me. She was trying to teach me proper boundaries and is feeling sympathy toward the victim. Um, but given the fact that I've never had a victim and I know boundaries, it was um, pretty unhelpful. And, and we wasted a lot of time and money doing that. Um, I feel most for most therapists, what they need to hear is the main thing that um, minor attracted people deal with is shame and stigma and the feeling un of unworthiness. And I know therapists are trained in dealing with those issues with, you know, people who deal with them for other reasons. So if a, a minor attracted person comes in and actually feels brave enough to 
admit to their attraction, first you got to obviously take the safe route and feel, you know, feel how they feel about if they want to offend or what. But once you determine the factor that they're not at risk of offending, mostly deal with the day-to-day drama and um, that they deal with. Like for me, shame was a huge part for the longest time. Um, you know, I, I hated the fact that I had this. I, I, when I was out in public, I would try to, um, avoid being around kids. I would try to not look at them in any way. If one was walking down the street toward me, I would cross to the other side and I was constantly making myself feel like, uh, you know, a terrible person. And the therapist that um, I had after the first one, the one who made me realize that my attraction was only a part of me, she's the one who really helped me deal with that shame and that stigma. And also, you know, during that time, my brother really started having issues of wanting to talk to me and be around me. And so she really helped me deal with, you know, dealing with that separation from a family member and how to process that and how to respect their viewpoints. And, you know, the main thing, I think most therapists think if a minor attractive person comes into their, they, they have to help prevent them from offending and they don't know how to do that all the time. And I, and at least in my experiences, that's not the case. And that's not the case with some of my other friends that I've discussed uh, this topic with. And I just feel that therapists just realize that we're human beings, just like everyone else. We deal with depression, suicidal thoughts. You just have to help them out the way you were trained and only deal with the minor attraction. If the, that person decides to bring it up and to be open to hearing what they have to say without um, potentially feeling disgust toward it, even if you do inside your head. Mm -hmm. Describe what stigma means to you. So stigma is something I've dealt with, um, especially since I've decided to put my voice out there and be heard. Um, I've in creating this podcast and going on the prevention podcast, I've constantly been associated with offenders and I've, I've not been even given a chance to actually let people hear my story. They've automatically assumed that I'm trying to um, lower the age of consent and trying to, um, you know, make sex with minors legal, which is definitely not what I'm trying to do. Um, most people do not want to hear that. They shut their ears off because it's too uncomfortable for them to deal with. And it's led to a lot of issues in dealing with people just mass reporting me and getting my, um, my YouTube channel deplatformed. And to me, that's more harmful than good. You got to be able and open to hear this. Um, the motto of my podcast is listening is understanding and, you know, without that, you're, you know, you're just going to remain ignorant and the stigma is going to continue for this population forever. Yeah, I think there's a, a lesson to be said about tolerance and, and the idea of free speech as well. I mean, I would far, my bias and my prejudice is that I would far rather tolerate uh, speech that I don't like than to be dictated to what you know, is allowed to be said or what, what's not allowed to be said. Hence, um, 
um, your comment on censorship. Uh, what what has described this mass reporting and experiences you've had with being canceled or, or, or shut down? Yeah, so, I mean, I first experienced it on, on Twitter. I had an account on Twitter um, ever since I joined the community. And, you know, I would get into heated discussions with um, what I like to refer to as antis or trolls. And it was basically talking in an echo chamber. Um, I wasn't reaching them, but I, I still did it on the fact that maybe someone else reading my tweets would hear it and, you know, actually see that I was trying to um, help prevent child abuse more than anything. And, but in doing so on Twitter, like, you know, they have had a, um, a relationship with minor attractive people over the years where at first they kicked everyone off. And then a lot of um, researchers like Dr. Sito and um, Dr. Cantor wrote a long letter to them to allow us on there, which they did for a while. But um, any little thing could get you mass reported and get your account suspended for no reason. Um, So once my account was fully suspended, I decided not to even bother trying to create another one. Um, I just decided to focus on my podcast and I was gathering a really decent um, viewership count. I also had close to like 300 subscribers um, and my, you know, it, it seemed like it was going in the positive way and all of a sudden one day I log in to check my current um, statistics and find that my account was suspended and uh, deplatformed. And so I, I filed an appeal to YouTube and I instantly got a um, rejection letter saying that the, um, the suspension stands, you were sexualized in minors. And so in the past, I normally would have just shut that down and just, you know, accepted the fact that, okay, I don't have that anymore. I, I got to find another way to put my podcast out there. But being in this, um, this world for as long as I have two and a half years, I've built a lot more confidence. So I decided to appeal again. And I, I pretty much called them out for not actually listening to any of my episodes that they just went with the mass reporting. And it took them a little longer to come back um, with the rejection again. But so hopefully some of the people in the YouTube world actually heard it and like was trying to deal with it, but they just didn't want the, the, the problem um, of, you know, bringing my channel back up and what that would mean to their, their platform. Interesting. Yeah. Fascinating uh, that, you know, once upon a time, um, you know, the, the, the law of the land is what would govern uh, how you would conduct yourself. But nowadays, it's not even about, um, you know, appealing to the courts, per se, it's about appealing to tech, tech companies. Um, yeah. yeah, so, so your success in being able to publish uh, this, what, you know, what, what some might call controversial material uh, has been attributed to the fact that you maintain your own domain and publish, uh, describe, you know, how it is that you've managed to, uh, to pursue this project. Yeah. So once I realized there was no hope of really getting back on YouTube, I had to decide what to do. Um, I've had a few people in the community reach out saying that they might be, um, potentially able to host my episodes on it, but 
after dealing with the whole YouTube situation and having that risk of constantly being one decision away of losing my channel again, I decided to uh, take control and, you know, I've had some previous experience in website design and I've always enjoyed doing that. So I figured, um, you know, I, I get to control my podcast. So I, I fronted the money to uh, host the domain and, you know, registered a domain name. And I also um, have created a blog site as well for people to, uh, it's written by maps for maps. Um, and there's also a few allies that have um, written some pieces as well. And that's actually linked on my, um, on my podcast site. Folks can check that out and I'll link uh, your show uh, with your permission. I'll link uh, uh, mapsjourneypodcast.com uh, in my show notes so people can find it uh, over there. Sure, definitely. Um, I'm happy to have you do that. Yeah. I want more and more people to hear it. Um, you know, I want the information to get out there. I, I want to uh, hear a little bit more about, um, I mean, obviously there's a lot to lose uh, in your case, you know, we start, we spoke briefly offline about, um, you know, the fact that you use a pseudonym, uh, obviously, well, I get, I say it's obvious, but I want you to, um, to share, you know, what's at stake and what, uh, measures do you take to, to, uh, maintain safety and security for yourself? Oh well, yeah. Yeah. Elliot is definitely a pseudonym. I, um, I've been using it since I've joined the community. Um, it's a name that actually means something to me, and that's why I picked it. Um, but I, for security reasons, I obviously don't give my information regularly out to people. Um, you know, uh, on my website, I have a contact form instead of my actual email address, so I can weed out the trolls um, contacting me for you know stupid reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, it's it's difficult to know whether or not I'm fully like keeping myself safe. Um, but I, I don't regularly give my information out to anyone who contacts me. It takes a while to, uh, build that trust before I actually reveal identifying information. And what was the, uh, motivation or, I mean, you were very, you've been gracious with your time and, and, and courageous coming on speaking about your experiences. You have a lot more to lose, uh, than to gain. Uh, some could say in, in sort of coming out in the way that you are, um, what, what, why, why, why risk it? Because I feel it's important. You know, like I said throughout this episode, um, the more accurate information that gets out there, the better chances that less and less children get abused. Um, you know, that's why the prevention project is called that. It's called the primary prevention. It's to stop the abuse from happening. Um, you know, we're such a reactionary society anymore, and we're all looking into punishment and um, stuff like that. But if you're doing that, you're still allowing a ch- child to be harmed. And I don't want that. I want people to not ever go down that route. And so I take the risk of putting my voice out there um, and letting people hear my message because I feel if I use alter my voice in any way or whatever like that, that would kind of take away from what I'm trying to get across that it would come to uh, it would probably have people's opinion that I was still trying to hide something if I 
I altered my voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, uh, a, a uh, an evident degree of uh, authenticity, and and uh, you strike me as um, as a genuine uh, person with with caring interests. Um, um, you know, but obviously the need to you know maintain some precautions, uh, like a, like using a pseudonym, for example. Um, I guess I'm wondering about, you know, uh, trolling and, and some of the, I mean, the internet can be, can be a, a, a terrible place for, you know, hiding behind screens and, and, uh, and saying, uh, hurtful things. Um, what was it about the Rex Krim show that, uh, that gave you a semblance of comfort in coming on to, to speak about your experiences? Well, I listened to a few of your earlier episodes and just, tried to like view what what you were trying to get across and you definitely seem as you said to me a genuine person and I love that episode you did with your mom in the very beginning where she kept on getting phone calls (laughs) during the episode that's something that I'm sure would happen with my mom too (laughs) so um you know you it made it really relatable it made me feel like you know you were honestly trying to understand this community and also listening to the episode you did with PJ and how you treated him, I, I definitely knew I could trust you. Mm-hmm. Well, the quality has definitely uh, improved since uh, the first earlier episodes. Um, but yeah, I think empathy is a central theme in trying to really understand experience. And I think understanding experience is central to the conceptions of crime and and what uh, what goes about uh, creating policies that criminalize and um, you know it's it, it's a it's a means of understanding. So one of the things that really shed light on uh, for me on one of your episodes was um, was this uh, exercise that you described about using your non dominant hand to to write a letter to yourself. Let's uh, mm-hmm. let's can you share a little bit about that sort of interpersonal work? Uh, describe that exercise. Yeah, so it was um, in a book that was uh, written by John Bradshaw, I believe his name is, and it's about um, finding your inner child and finding the person that was harmed or hurt. And so I started reading the book, and it got to this one point where he wanted you to do this exercise where you had your your inner child write a letter to your adult self using your non-dominant hands so you could feel how frustrating it is for a child to be heard and to be understood. And um, during the, um, the exercise while I was doing it, I was looking at myself in a window um, at night and the window made my, my reflection very distorted. And it just, it was really powerful for me because it really showed to me that I am both people. I am my adult Elliot and my child boy Elliot at the same time. And I got to listen and understand both, both parts of me if I'm going to live a healthy life. Yeah. And so the exercise involved using your, I think your non-dominant hand to to write a letter to yourself, uh, so to speak. Yeah. Finish that thought. I just was saying it is really frustrating to write with the hand you don't normally use. You, it's just, you don't know how to form words and it's, it's, it's crazy what it is. Like you, you don't realize how unconscious it is to 
um, use your dominant hand. There's something to be said about integration here. You're describing, you know, integrating these two compartmentalized cells uh, as a whole. And in a way, the conversation that we're having in, in public is about integrating divergent perspectives, you know, um, uh, to, to, to make it humane and, uh, and normal. Um, and so, you know, I think uh, the trouble is for folks that aren't able to, to work towards that integration. I think that's what leads to authenticity and, and being genuine uh, integration. And that involves interpersonal work. And I just love that, uh, that uh, exercise that you described. So I'll, I'll try to link uh, information about um, John uh, Bradshaw or look into that myself. I want to conclude um, with any uh, insights you can share or any advice uh, for folks that might be struggling, that, that need help, but uh, what pitch can you make uh, and where would you point um, for help for folks that, uh, that might be struggling with their own orientation or their own being? Well, first and foremost, using my contact form on my, my website for my podcast, anyone who is struggling can feel free to contact me. I have a a name field on that, but, you know, feel free to use whatever name you want. Um, and, but the more like resources like out there, there's a uh, um, dot org. There's um, before you ask um, therapist list. There's the prevention um, global prevention projects has a weekly um, call. That's um, actually, it's not a one-on-one therapy session. It's actually a group session where you're with, um, other maps discussion different topics it's also psychoeducational so um, they they help you out um, in dealing with health healthy sexuality and various topics like that um, there's the map support club which is a chat room for for minor attractive people and what's nice about that is they allow teenagers in there whereas verped doesn't um, and there's also that help help wanted prevention um, program that the Moore Center created. Right on. I, I will uh, do my best to link uh, as many of those resources as I can, uh, all committed to non-offending um, uh, and, and looking to support folks to live, I guess, integrated lives, you know, that are, uh, that's, that's committed to well-being as opposed to wrongdoing and, and harm that can come from acting out. So I, I want to thank you, Elliot. Uh, I wonder what direction you can give uh, in, in going forward. I was thinking it would be really interesting to um, interview therapists again or to have some researchers on the show. Uh, maybe you can help make a, a link for me and um, and uh, and uh, and point me in the direction of folks that might be willing to give an interview on the professional side of helping to counsel and and conduct research on this topic. Sure, definitely. Yeah, offline, I, I can definitely send you an email to some people I I feel would be willing to talk to you. Um, some might be easier to get on as others due to their schedule being crazy. Um, but one other resource that I wanted to. Uh, um, list that I, I forgot is um, ASAP International. That's the Association for Sexual Abuse Prevention. Um, they also have a, a therapist list as well. Um, and they also have a crisis line for anyone in immediate need to speak with someone. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm familiar with that resource. And, uh, and um, 
yeah, I think there's more to be said on this topic. So we'll, we'll be in touch about uh, where we can go further in, in uh, explicating this social dilemma. So I, uh, I want to give you the final word and I just want to uh, send my sincere uh, gratitude for you taking the time, Elliot. Well, thank you. You know, I'm, I'm glad there are more and more people out here who are willing to hear what it's actually like to have this attraction and not instantly shut us down. You know, I, I have my own podcast where I've been bring therapists and researchers on, um, and I've been on the prevention podcast and, but those are all mental health related. So it's nice to have another avenue to discuss these topics with, with your show.